Greetings and welcome to the first episode of the Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. I'm the president of the Michigan Hemingway Society and also owner of Petoskey Yesterday, a local tour company specializing in tours of Ernest Hemingway's local haunts and, of course, our own very popular evening ghost walks. I've been researching Hemingway's Michigan connection for over 20 years, during which time I've become absolutely obsessed with the diverse and rich history of the Little Traverse Bay region. One thing I've noticed over the years, no matter what theme tour I'm leading, our guests always seem to be just about as interested in the historical information we include as the actual theme itself. We're going to be sharing aspects of this amazing history that surrounds us here in northern Michigan, beginning with this first episode, Petoskey Remembered. We're going to go back quite a ways here. Millions and millions of years ago, a great portion of northern Michigan was under a shallow saltwater sea, eventually dried up and left us with tons of fossilized coral, or Petoskey stone. In contrast, 10,000 years ago, we would have been beneath two miles of ice before the vast glaciers began to retreat, leaving behind the largest concentration of fresh water on the planet, the Great Lakes that we're all so familiar with. Pretty soon after the last ice age ended, as many as 20 Native American tribes began summering and fishing around the Great Lakes region. And last year, there was even new evidence found indicating a pre-ice age civilization at the Straits of Mackinac that could potentially date back much, much earlier than ever imagined. In 1621, the first recognized European explorer, Etienne Brule, reached the shores of northern Michigan. By the early 1600s, more French voyageurs, including Joliet, Marquette, and Nicolette, arrived at the Great Lakes via the St. Lawrence Seaway, a journey that often took more than a year, depending on the timing and departure and the length and severity of the winters that were so intense during those years. These early adventurers were followed closely by the Jesuit missionaries, came to convert and establish missions for the Native Americans, primarily the Ottawa, the Adawa as we call them now, the Ojibwa, and the Potawatomi. And of course my pronunciation on that may be a little bit subject to uh, um, your own preference. There's a large boulder right across from the Perry Hotel, if you've ever noticed it, in the Arlington Park and Penn Park kind of corridor there, that marks the old Native American Highway, which is really just a series of trails that eventually became M119, the Tunnel of Trees, and, of course, the U.S. 1 corridor down to what is now Grand Rapids. Of course, this predates that by a couple thousand years. This old Indian highway is the same trail used in 1763 during Pontiac's Rebellion at Fort Detroit. Basically, the local natives got fed up with the way the English were treating them and exploiting their resources and decided to siege Forts Detroit and Michelmackinac here in northern Michigan and basically, uh, well, let's say, kill all the British. If you get a chance when you're at Michel Mackinac or at some of the other gift shops around Michigan and you see a copy of Alexander Henry's Massacre at Fort Michel Mackinac, make sure and pick up a copy. Uh, it provides an amazing perspective of life in the northern Michigan area in the 1700s. Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan and St. Ignace are two of the oldest incorporated towns in the United States, right after St. Augustine, Florida. And Mackinac Island is now the site of the oldest St. Anne's Parish in the U.S. Originally built of birch bark by the French in 1670 at St. Ignace, it was moved to Fort Michel Mackinac in 1715 and updated to a wooden structure. And then in one deep winter, when the ice was completely solid across the Straits of Mackinac, it was moved over to the island. That was in 1781. For a short while, when there was no permanent priest on site, it was actually used as a brothel, something quite contrast its original intention. A little bit of the darker side of Mackinac's history. Presence Church that stands on that site at Mackinac Island dates to 1873. Uh, this church and parish were the predecessors to what is often referred to as the Catholic Communities of Crooked Tree, or La Bricroche, which includes 
Holy Cross, established 1691 at Cross Village. St. Ignatius, Middle Village. The first structure there was erected in 1741, right near the site of the current church, which is the third structure actually to be erected at that location. There used to be an enormous crooked tree located there, right next to the church, the present-day church, and that was a landmark that the voyageurs used as they came around the tip of the mitt. It was a huge crooked tree, again, very visible from the water, and hence the name Crooked Tree or Labre Croche, which is still used to reference this area today. Coming south a little bit farther, we wind up in a Holy Childhood in Harbor Springs. That particular parish was established in 1829 with a small church and a school for the local Native Americans. Also went extensive renovations over the years. Wood buildings just don't fare so well in the damp woods of northern Michigan. Here in Potosia, we have St. Francis Solanus, or the Old Indian Mission Church, as many people recognize it as. This church was built in 1859 under the direction of Bishop Berica, who was known as the Snowshoe Priest. He made his way all the way across northern Michigan in the deep of winter. Only viable way of travel would have been those snowshoes. The oldest buildings in Michigan proper are the Officer's Stonehouse and the Guard Tower at Fort Mitchell Mackinac on the island, two of my favorite buildings to, uh, to visit when I'm there. You can actually see the old etchings from the soldiers going back to that early period of the 1700s. Prior to the Indian Mission Church being erected here in Batoski, Andrew Porter had already established a Presbyterian mission in 1852 as they competed with the Catholics and the Methodists for the souls of the natives. From here, the Catholic missionaries will continue on to Old Mission Peninsula and Leonard Peninsula and also establish parishes there, right by Traverse City. In the early 1840s, Chief Petoskey, who's actually one-half French and one-half Native American, became disillusioned by the Catholics. It was one priest in particular that kind of got rubbed him the wrong way, and moved over from Harbor Springs to this side of the bay, where there was a small Native American settlement near Bear Creek, right at the mouth of the river where it empties into Little Traverse Bay. He eventually owned a substantial amount of land and a small store. In the Treaty of 1855, he was provided even more land. Petoskey's father was a fur trader sometimes working for John Jacob Astor on Mackinac Island. Astor's grandson was the richest man on the Titanic on that fateful night. The Astors made millions and millions of dollars a year trading beaver pelts for Michigan, and Ignatius Petoskey was very much an entrepreneur like his father. Beaver pelts were basically the staple for warm weather wear for about 400 years. They were also in the height of fashion, so if you could compare the money made at Astor's Fur Trading Company in one year, it would equal billions of dollars in today's money. The next very prosperous era will bring us to the lumber years. Two times more money was made from harvesting white pine alone in northern Michigan than all of the money made during the two major gold rush eras, and that's Alaska and California. The majority of what was once said to be an inexhaustible amount of lumber was gone in less than 20 years. Petoskey, by the late 1870s, was barren and clear-cut. You wouldn't even recognize it today. In 1857, the GR&I Railroad was awarded 823,204 acres, not to be specific, by the U.S. Congress along with other railroads in the area to promote Midwest settlement, especially tourism, which we really took to heart and which flourished quite fast. 5 p.m., November 23, 1873, Governor Bagley arrives on the first non-industrial or lumbering train in Petoskey, and transit begins the following year, 1874. We had just a few structures, maybe 118 total, few markets, just a few homes, and some industry going on down by the waterfront. An intense marketing campaign was created that targeted St. Louis, Kansas City, and Chicago, and was billed as the Fishing Line. 1875 will also be the first full season for Bayview. 
first visited by Samuel Knapp and a small group of Methodists out of Jackson, Michigan, Mrs. Knapp, who was not in good health and had spent the summer here in Petoskey, Michigan, realized the fresh air and the water had a rejuvenating effect on her health. After arranging a deal for the property, the group spent the summer of 1875 in tents. The first services began in 1876, and within just a few years, Bayview would draw thousands and thousands of Methodists each Sunday for services, and eventually 450 families would build the beautiful Victorian-themed cottages that still define Bayview to this day. 1886, Bayview becomes a Chautauqua, modeled after the Chautauqua camp in New York, which centered its values around worship, the arts, music, health, and exercise. Each year, world-class musicians, artists, speakers, including Helen Keller, Booker T. Washington, and Irma Raumbauer, author of The Joy of Cooking, the most published cookbook in the world, spent the seasons at Bayview. Continued education and college classes were provided by Albion College and brought potentially thousands of additional guests each year. This was beginning of the glory years for the region surrounding Little Traverse Bay. And basically, this was all driven and promoted by H.O. Rose and Chief Petoskey with a little help from Dr. Ramsdale, a very wealthy doctor here in town. They arranged quite a few of the deals for the acquisition of the property and the lands around the area. Hotels sprung up overnight. Eventually, there would be over 70 hotels and rooming houses in the Bay Area. We'll have another segment that concentrates specifically on the incredible history of all the hotels and the unfortunate fires that destroyed so many over the years. By 1880, 13,000 trains a season are arriving in Petoskey, Michigan, making this the second busiest rail hub in Michigan, right behind Detroit, which had 12 months of transit and also catered to full-time industry. So if you can imagine that amount of trains, we're talking one train every three to five minutes rowing through Bayview on its way into Petoskey, then to the suburban station, and then back out. So when you're walking through Penn Station and it's so quiet and subdued there, just remember that that was quite the hub of transit in the early years. The GR&I Railroad, 1874, and the Chicago West Michigan, which arrived in 1892, which was also known as the Pier Marquette, brought up to 6,000 passengers a day. In 1898, transit from Chicago to Petoskey was roughly 1485, a pretty good chunk of change for that time. We also had over 150 luxury passenger steamships coming here weekly. We wanted to have the first opportunity to entice them to stay at the hotels here before they continued on north to Mackinac and the Grand Hotel. The docks here in Petoskey were continuously being swept away to the elements and the severe storms that we still see every fall and winter in the bay. In just three years, H.L. Rose and the city of Petoskey spent over $18,000 replacing the docks. After so many catastrophes and so much money spent, eventually the docks were moved over to Harbor Springs, which is the deepest, best-protected natural harbor on Lake Michigan. It's not uncommon to this day in the storms of October to look out there and see big freighters taking shelter over on that side of the bay. 1890 stats, we had, as I like to say in joke, 17 hotels, 17 attorneys, and 17 saloons. Basically, everything worked out kind of mathematical if you look at it from that perspective. But we had 20 dressmakers, 20 grocery stores, three cigar manufacturers. If you stayed here in Petoskey, Michigan, you could find everything that you could find in a big city. This was considered one of the premier shopping districts also. Soon following, we have famous families of industry, the Proctors, the Gambles, Hiram Walker, the Reynolds families, Anheuser and Bush families basically the moguls of manufacturing and industry. They started building their beautiful cottages, Harbor Springs, Walloon Lake, and of course they'd bring their friends and family, many of whom also were likely to fall in love with the rustic yet progressive environment and build their own cottages. 
The hotels soon became much more luxurious also. Arlington, which my store is named after, and then eventually became the new Arlington, which had 250 rooms and all the modern amenities you'd find in any big city anywhere in the world. We competed with the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island, and many of the old hotels also provided gambling, both legal and illegal, for the resorters and wealthy alike. Up until the 1950s, when payola dried up, there's even rumors of the Grand Hotel reporting themselves to the state police for raids. The raids would happen, and then a couple of weeks later, things would calm down, and basically what that was meant to do was get all this PR out basically to Chicago, St. Louis, and Kansas City, telling people we did have all this gambling up here, and within a couple of weeks, the gambling would start right back up. It was pretty much a don't ask, don't tell situation, all the way again until the 1950s when the Club Manitou was raided for the last time in Harbor Springs. Beginning with Ramona Park, Harbor Springs Premier Resort, and the Perry Hotel in 1899, the age of the fireproof hotels began. Fire was always a major concern in those days, the importance, again, of which we will discuss in further detail in episodes to come. Shopping was another major draw to the area. Petoskey was one of the premier shopping districts in the U.S. Anything you could get in a big city we had here, including Rosenthal's, the Marshall Fields of Northern Michigan, as it was often referred to, and later we even had a Saks Fifth Avenue. There's a section that comes out of the Ramona Hotel's propaganda, basically telling you if you could find anything in London or New York, you could find it here in Petoskey, Michigan. The City Park Grill actually had lobster cooked six different ways each day. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a nice, fresh lobster meal in Petoskey right now in the winter. Petoskey became known as a center of health and rejuvenation. If you've ever read the book Devil in the White City about the Chicago World's Fair, it was quoted that if you lived in Chicago and you were the wealthiest person living on Michigan Avenue, you're basically drinking water that comes out of the river that's been contaminated by the corpses of dead horses and dead cows. So the artesian wells that we had flowing around the area up here were a big draw. People came for the healing and cathartic qualities of the mineral springs, Petoskey's famous mineral springs as they were built, wading pools of fresh water, and abundant, cool, fresh air, and of course, the million-dollar sunsets. There were at least two sanatoriums, including the Seville and the New Petoskey. The Seville Hotel, which was eventually turned into a tuberculosis hospital, had several iron lung machines and then was converted back to a hotel, just a little bit eerie in my opinion. I'm not sure if that'd be the first place I would be staying if I was coming to northern Michigan. National Hay Fever Association eventually puts its headquarters here. We had the lowest pollen count in the country. We had no trees, and there was also about 63 miles of fresh water and air between here and Wisconsin. Eventually, the Jewish Hay Fever Association will also put their headquarters here. Michigan, and Petoskey specifically, was a very well-known center for wellness, bringing thousands and thousands of tourists each year. By the late 1800s, we had several other resort communities founded, including Wequitansing, Manaqua, Roaring Brook, the Alanson area, and the Inland Waterway that connects Lake Huron to Lake Michigan, Horton Bay, Charlevoix, and of course, Wallen Lake, one of my favorite places. Many of these communities were established by resorters that built cottages and again invited their friends and families from back home to come up, many of whom would also build their own cottages, some for five or six generations now. In 1898, Walloon's most famous summer residence, the Ernest Hemingway family, will build a small cottage on 375 feet of Walloon and build a cottage that's approximately 20 by 40 uh, for a total of about 900 bucks. If you know the values out on Walloon Lake these days, you'd know that at 900 bucks, they're getting quite a value. That same 375 feet of property right now would go for about $14,000 a foot. Ernest Hemingway spent at least a portion of 23 of his boyhood summers on Walloon. 
which provided the inspiration for many of his short stories, as well as his connection to Paris and also his literary celebrity. We also have a future full episode planned about the five generations of Hemingways who have lived in Somerdamwalloon Lake, and that'll be coming up in the near future. In the late 1920s, early 30s, Petoskey was dubbed the winter sports capital of America. Now, we had real winters at that time. If you were traveling right now, this time of the year, between southern Petoskey and Elmira, that area headed towards Gaylord, you'd have 21 feet, 6 inches of standing snow on average every year. And that wasn't just a snowbank or a drift. That pretty much covered the whole area up here. We had what was called mother-in-law doors, sort of a derogatory, but hopefully tongue-in-cheek remark. Basically, people would get snowed in. Uh, you'd wake up in the morning and your front level of your house would be completely engulfed in snow. So there were quite often escape doors on the second floor with no stairwells, uh, kind of hence the name, the mother-in-law door. The long winters and cold weather allowed for the construction of a winter sports park right here in Petoskey. We had skiing, sledding, toboggan runs, and of course, within a few years, Stanley Kellogg's world-famous elaborate ice sculptures. Uh, he would spend weeks and weeks carving these sculptures, and every year they got larger and larger and larger. Ultimately, the last couple that he did were just absolutely spectacular. If you get a chance, look those up online, you'll at least get a pretty good reference to the detail and the artistry that he included in those ice sculptures. In 1947, Everett Kircher will purchase Boyne Mountain for $1 and further cement the area's reputation as a year-round resort destination. During all of this rush to create a healthy resort atmosphere, which catered to the summer resorters, we were still fighting with industry. On the Bear River, we had several paper mills. Uh, we had Michigan Maple Block, five dams, smokestacks spewing smoke all the way down the Bear River, petroleum sales, and of course, Armstrong flooring. There was the mining of the limestone cliffs right on the waterfront in front of the hotels, pursued by H.O. Rose. When H.O. Rose first came to Petoskey, he knew if nothing else was going to work in the area financially, that the limestone that we had in abundance at the cliffs would be very fruitful financially in the industry of iron ore and also in cement manufacturing. Problem is, in those days, you didn't necessarily want a room from your hotel facing the water. The bay often ran red from the dye coming out of the tanneries around the shores. At one point, there was actually a plan to reroute the Sturgeon River from Wolverine all the way over to Petoskey, Michigan, to create more hydropower. If you can imagine proposing something like this to the DNR, which uh, I don't think would go over so well, nor should it. Thank God that never happened. The Sturgeon River to this day is one of the more beautiful rivers in northern lower Michigan. The one thing all these communities that we will be talking further about in future segments have shared over the years the last century and a half to be specific, is tradition. That trip up north, the opening of the cottage, and whenever possible, staying one day longer than planned. Thank you for joining us for this first episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past, and we look forward to sharing much more interesting information with you over the coming weeks.